Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience-requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days, you will receive daily emails with micro-tasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash business plans with an S to register. On this episode, we have Sundaram Tagore. Sundaram comes from the most prominent Indian family in the arts for their awe-inspiring contribution to the subcontinent's culture, including Nobel Prize winning writer Rabindranath Tagore. Sundaram grew up in a home that mirrored the salons of Europe, where artists and intellectuals of all forms would drop in at his family house in Calcutta for an open invitation lunch. He migrated to Canada in his late teens and made his way to the U.S. where he would eventually study. He landed in New York post-undergrad and leveraged his passion for art history into roles working with galleries. He spent a year in Venice establishing one of the most popular exhibits for their Biennale. Subsequent to that, he went to Oxford to pursue his doctoral studies. Sundaram opened a gallery in New York roughly two decades ago with a theme of cross-cultural representation. It has expanded to multiple locations and a global footprint. His personal artistic expression remains documentary filmmaking. His most recent endeavor, called Tiger City, celebrates architect Louis Kahn's last contribution to humanity. Sundaram, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show. Thank you so much, Asim, for um, including me in your uh, conversation. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, this is a significant treat um, for me. Um, there is no one of Indian heritage who is not familiar with the significant cultural contributions of the uh, Tagore family. Um, you know what uh, Jawaharlal Nehru and his descendants have done for Indian politics. Uh, your family has done for for culture and. Uh, maintaining the cultural banner. And so this is um, really an exquisite conversation that I've been looking forward to uh, for quite some time. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'd be delighted to sort of um, answer your questions. That's wonderful. Um, Let's go back uh, to the early 60s. So you're born in in Calcutta. Yeah, Um, I was born in Calcutta in those days um, and Kolkata now. we kind of grew up in, in a kind of milieu of a, a sort of artistic uh, circle. And my father was an artist, a poet and painter, and he had gone to study art in the, in the 30s in England. And with, with a larger group of his family members, he was living there and he went to Central School of Art, just uh, become very well known now. Um, but uh, when he came back to India, and this is during the absolutely in the heart of uh, World War II taking place. And Calcutta at that time um, was an epicenter for the Allied forces. Right. And uh, because of, they were trying to contain uh, the Japanese army coming in through Burma into India. Exactly. And there were a large number of um, um, army uh, folks who were largely middle-class intellectual. They were not just ordinary Tommies and they were from 
from England, Australia, America, and they were all living there. And there was a kind of sloshing for spaces, you know, um, cultural. And they would go to places like Jamini Roy, you know, the famous Indian artist who Peggy Guggenheim visited him and Ian e. Foster. So my father um, sort of grouped together and formed the first Indian collective called the Calcutta Group, oh. named the Bloomsbury group because he knew a lot of the Bloomsbury folks in back in London and they grouped together and created and they also had the first woman artist to be in that collective and um, Kamala Das Gupta. Right. And so it was very and there were people like uh, in his milieu were Satyajit Ray and Ravi Shankar and Uday Shankar the great dancers and all these people were part of that group and so it was very exciting so when we grew up that's the kind of conversation, all these folks. We had an open house during lunchtime. Anyone could come in Amazing. and actually have to prepare lunch for whoever came in. And there'd be the editor for, from Statesman, some, some artist coming in, Ganesh Fine, or someone like that, you know, would come in and we would listen. We would be kind of on the sideline listening to adults' conversation. So it was very exciting to be part of that, yet we were too young at that point, you know, right. and this in the sort of mid 60s and 70s, you know, and then late 60s, we moved to Delhi okay. um, because there was also in the 60s, what was happening, there was a kind of communist uprising taking place in Bengal sure. called the Night Flight Movement. It was a kind of intellectual movement and all these great sort of uh, young people, idealistic people, they wanted to take care of the poor a lot. Right. They thought that privileged and they want to take care of them. But unfortunately that went, um, what happens to any kind of, uh, this kind of uh, civil unrest or, or something like that, you know, and large number of the corporations left first, mm -hmm. then the people started leaving and there's a buzz, migration of people. We'll move to Delhi and then from Delhi, uh, we moved to, I, I uh, went to uh, Canada and uh, States. Right. And, uh, uh, I remember reading about all this. It's, uh, it's a fascinating, I mean, geographically where Calcutta was um, led to so much of it being this epicenter. Um, I mean, it was the seat of the Viceroy during the British Raj and um, Lord Mountbatten, um, who eventually was the one who presided over the partitioning of India and Pakistan. Um, we talked about the uh, you know the Japanese theater of war. Um, he was the one in Singapore um, who had to um, cede and uh, sign the the treaty of um, uh, basically giving up the uh, Southeast Asia territories to Japan, and um, uh, and then sort of made his way back to to Calcutta from there. Um, and it, it's fascinating because of that. Uh, I know that uh, you know, not only is there that unique cultural presence within uh, Bengal, but also um, it's it's a state that is the most uh, where football, uh, soccer is the most popular, but also where yeah communism has had uh, some some roots even till today. There are some communist party members who um, uh, run and now and hold government offices. Um, Tell us, and so uh, thank you for describing this uh, amazing um, uh, upbringing and, um, uh, you know, it sort of embodied the family ethos of uh, breaking free from narrow domestic walls. And, and it just feels like this really was the seed that was planted, the foundation for, for a very common theme in your career of 
cross-cultural interaction, uh, which has come up in so many uh, parts of, of your work. Uh, so um, tell us about um, siblings. I know that you have a, a sister who had been based near Vancouver, and that was part of your going to, to Canada. Um, you also have a brother, Siddharth, who is a Delhi resident. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so I, my sister was living in, in British Columbia in Canada, and she was an artist, and she had a cabin in a small little island called Denman Island. So that's how she kind of, in those days when you're, when you're coming abroad and she sponsored me and so that was my introduction to the west actually um and so what happened is uh, is um i came i used to spend my summer with them and um, and spend a lot of time in in canada and in, in denman island and it was a small uh, little island you know you had to take a ferry boat across from vancouver to a place called nanaimo and from nanaimo you had for two hours and then take another ferry boat for about mm. 10 minutes till you get to Denman Island. Right. It was really remote actually yeah. and in the 80s, early 80s, you know, right. I really remote and um, you can imagine I would wake up and they had, a, they had a cottage or cabin facing the water actually on Denman Island every one day because yeah. of small yeah. island. So, and I would wake up in the morning and there would be a killer whales going up and down, killer whale pods and no experience. And it was from leaving a city with about 10 million people or more and then coming to a place about 200 people. And people were really friendly. I obviously, I didn't have a car then and I didn't know how to, um, I didn't have a license. So I would walk all the way to the ferry station and people would automatically pick you up and give you a, <laughs> where do you want to go? We'll drive you to Courtney. We'll drive you to Campbell River. We're yeah. going. They were so generous and warm. And so that's the kind of introduction that I got. And so um, it was in incredible, actually. Yeah. So next to Denman Island, there was another island called Hornby Island. Okay. Hornby Island hosted a lot of artists and writers and journalists and all this kind of sort of hippie intellectuals who had kind of broken away from a conventional lifestyle and so we would be invited to a dance performance in the in the evening and a potluck dinner and so it was very exciting to be um, introduced to the west in that kind of context you know no absolutely and i appreciate your highlighting the contrast of coming from an area so densely populated like Calcutta and New Delhi and, and growing up where you don't know who's coming for lunch but you know someone's coming to being in this very isolated uh, situation. Um, how, how did that impact you and, and I'd love for you to share you know what artistic proclivities do you have did you have growing up what were you drawn to? Well um my parents were, both my mother was an artist, a singer actually, and then she ended up working for All India Radio as, a, as their uh, editor, you know. And, um, and then my father, um, who was an artist and a poet, publisher, ran an art magazine. And so I, I started studying art, you know, and I pursued that and I began sculpting a lot in the beginning, you know. But essentially, I, then I got, um, I met a, I went to a small college called College of Worcester in Ohio. Ohio, yeah. Yeah, and there was a really a remarkable individual called, um, it was a professor of mine, uh, Arne Lewis. Arne Lewis, yeah. yeah. And he was, he was such a warm individual and 
and he would take me, uh, he would take me, um, invite me to his uh, home, and then he would introduce me to all these kind of artistic sort of uh, stories. And, and he kind of took me under his wing. And that's how I got involved in art history. And um, I'm lucky, really, because art history, from my perspective, gives you an understanding it's through the artistic production of the people right. you, and history. You kind of understand people. And so that's why um, I'm really interested in, uh, I mean, from, of course, my cult cultural perspective, uh, from my family's cultural perspective, we were, we were um, largely a group of, my father was very bohemian in the sense, you know, not in a kind of conventional sense. What I mean by that, when he came back from England, his sympathy was with, with the poor people. And so he decided that he was gonna sleep on the street with the people, you know. And so we had, and then, but he couldn't palate the food. So he land up in a very fancy restaurant. So it's full of contradiction. And, and that's so true for most artists, you know. They can, they can live in that space, yes. you know. Because yes. being an artist, what do you do? You set yourself up with some problems and you go about solving. And so it becomes really, really important in today's context, you know, why um, we need to study artists and coming from that kind of culture. So when I came here, I studied art history. When I got out of, uh, graduated, uh, when I graduated, um, and like all, all graduates, you know, young graduates, we wanted to have a, this kind of grand experiences, you know, in your life. So we took a trip across the country from right. Ohio to Boston, from Boston, we crisscrossed the country, Amazing. landed up. Uh, staying with friends or cheap motels, and and I had read um, William Least Heat Moon's uh, The Blue Highway or Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of motorcycle. motorcycle Maintenance. Yes, <laughs> you know that. In fact, we went to Bozeman, Montana, where he was teaching one of the colleges, That's right. and we landed up in the middle of the night, and we are kind of trying to figure out where he was teaching in those days. So that's a kind of sort of life um, that I, I had created for myself, you know, because yeah. I was there. And, and so I had a, w a wonderful friend, uh, Bill Ross, uh, who had from Worcester, who went and stayed in our family, um, in, uh, with our family in India. And uh, so the two of us traveled also. So all kinds of exciting things were happening. And then, um, so that's how my, my life in, in, in America, it yeah. kind of unfolded, one thing led to another. And um, so I, I wasn't planning, and you don't plan to be an art historian that early stage because there weren't any jobs, sure. literally. And studying what I had studied, which was essentially, although I studied modernism and Western art, you have to study. But my interest was in modern Indian art. Sure. And I wanted to see the cross-cultural side of the story. And I furthered that later. but there weren't any places where you could say, I studied modern Indian art, can I go to a museum and work? Right. Although I worked for museum, <clears throat> but it was very short term, you know, because it was project based, you know, or in the education department, you know. Uh, so, um, because they didn't have a department of modern Indian art in any museums, anywhere in America, you know, there were, it would stop around 19th century. It would come classical art, yes. That's right. And it would stop around that. But my interest was modernism because I believe all the problems that we are facing today is all to do with uh, the modern and the tradition right. and the class. 
too. Awesome. So if they're able to navigate that wow. and understand that, so we can selectively appropriate things that from both sides, right. you know, and make it possible for us to coexist and exist in a peaceful space. Amazing. We don't have to be constantly confronted by something that's like, why is this happening? Because we are too traditional, or why is that happening? Or we're true modern. It doesn't because we are in a postmodern space, right. and postmodernism allows you to coexist. If if we call it, you know, that we are sure. postmodern, post post postmodern, whatever you call it, you know, <laughs> in this tradition and modernity coexist, and um, and that I learned from art history. Wonderful. Oh, that's a, what an exquisite experience, and then to be able to see the country. Uh, in the manner that you did. Um, ultimately, you found your way to the University of Oregon. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> where you met uh, your wife, Kelly. That's right. And so it, we're driving around uh, the country, um, as, as you know, and I, we stopped in Eugene, and we were in this bar called Taylor's, and I really loved that space. Um, I really, the people were really so warm and so generous and kind. Anyway, I went back to... Um, went back to, uh, uh, to British Columbia in, uh, in, in Denman Island and, and then in Victoria. I was staying with my uh, family, waiting to go to, go to uh, UPenn. I was in, um, <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Both my, uh, my alma mater. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. Both of us. Then my father passed away and the, the money that we were, um, that my father was sending, that came to a halt yes. and, and that had needed to be legally changed. And I was debating whether to go back to India. And I was, mm -hmm. obvi obviously I was thinking of going back to India and taking care of certain of, uh, family properties and family. And at that point, finally it was too late. I, I wasn't uh, there on time for my father's funeral, you know. Okay. Mm -hmm. I stayed on, but my sister went my brother was there and then uh, what happened is that i had a full scholarship from uh, from university of oregon and i said okay i'll go there and that's how i landed up in university and it was the most wonderful experience i had you know? oh, that's great well um we'll get into this in a little bit but uh, had you gone to penn um, maybe you would have released a documentary on, on louis Kahn a little sooner than you did <laughs> <laughs> I did spend a lot of time in your alma mater because I was using the archive, the Louis Kahn archive at yes. UPenn, yeah. and I did all my research on uh, Louis yeah. Kahn. Well, and there's a fair amount of footage from campus uh, in uh, Tiger City in the movie that you, that you released. Um, uh, you also met uh, your friend uh, Jennifer Prescott while at the uh, University of Oregon. No, I didn't meet her. We met her. We were all oh. friends in New York at that in 1985, oh, okay. 87, my wife, instead of going to, in the end, she didn't go to UPenn, she went to NYU Institute of Fine Arts. I see, okay. I, I went to work in New York and, and we were all, Jennifer Prescott and Michael Matthew, and we were all just sort of growing up here in Soho and hanging out and that's where we used to live. Uh, nice, that's great. But I'm number of uh, dissident artists from uh, Russia, from Soviet Union, ex-Soviet Union, right. and was, Russia was falling apart, you know, uh, meaning, um, and the, the beginning of Glasnost in some form, and sure, uh, yes. 
there were all these artists coming in. Um, so it was kind of very exciting to be with them. Yeah. Well, and uh, that became a bit of an area of your expertise. Uh, you were working with some galleries with Pace uh, at the time, Wildenstein. Um, you know, Jennifer has shared this uh, great story about how she um, gifted a antique desk for you and Kelly as a wedding gift um, that uh, you had both fallen in love with. And yeah. Fond of. I um, and if you could share for our audience, because I think it's a beautiful story, um, how you reciprocated her kindness. Um, they, were, they were very close friends of ours, very close. I literally like family members. We were doing everything together. We would finish work or there was uh, studies or whatever, and then we would congregate together um, in Soho and uh, either pre-dinner, post-dinner. And those days, New York was very interesting. Yeah. It was also scary, but it was really vital <laughs> the part. There were all these, because the loft spaces in Soho, they were fairly easy to access compared to now. And even mm -hmm. early 70s and 80s, there was, it was dangerous, but it's also vast number of people were leaving New York and mm -hmm. they were moving to Connecticut. All the headquarters were moving. Companies had moved in the 70s, late 70s. It's beginning of that when they were coming back to New York. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really exciting um, because not only that you were connecting with all these uh, artists, you know, visual artists, but the Broadway group and through Jennifer and Jennifer's uh, friends, we were exposed to that. And so, so it was, so we went, you know, we were very close. And to, uh, so I was there at the wedding um, in, in, I think it was in Rhode Island, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with, with Michael, uh, and um, so she gave us this gift. It's an amazing gift. And um, so, I, so I had a major work of Russian art that right. I owned. And I, I kind of gave that. The Wonderful. That's uh, a, it's a lovely story. And uh, you know, she used that as a prime example of your humanity and uh, your thoughtfulness. So I, I thought it was a great <clears throat> anecdote that, that I wanted to, to share for uh, our listeners. Um, uh, so I mean, it sounds like an amazing time to, to be in New York and, and the things that you could do. Um, uh, from, from there, uh, in the late 80s, in 89, you had a, a short uh, sojourn, you could say, at, uh, to Venice, which was almost uh, on your way to, to head to Oxford um, for your uh, doctoral studies. Right. So what happened in the uh, late 80s, you know, I was, what, uh, coincidentally, right before we were leaving um, uh, New York, we planned, and I got this... Uh, uh, Italian Ministry of Culture through the Guggenheim Foundation, we got this uh, scholarship to work and study museology at the Pe Peggy Guggenheim Museum in Venice. It's, a, it's become a very well-known uh, internship program, although we were paid, but it was called the internship. Even the, the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, he also was there. A whole range of very, very major figures who came out of uh, Dr. Philip Ryland's program Right. And he was the one who kind of created that. And he kind of taught you, you ran this. So the idea of being in Venice and, and working there was you ran this museum, all run by these young people. And you did from opening the doors to taking the collecting ticket money to actually learning about the art, 
maintaining it and giving presentation, weekly presentation. Mm. Um, so the all aspects of the museum, a small museum, and it was an amazing program, actually. Mm. And so friends I met there, they're even friends of mine even today. Wonderful. And because of that, I, I was exposed to the Venice Biennale and then those early years, you know, and then I, no one, no one, hardly anyone knew about Venice Biennale in the, in the context, unless you came from the art world. Right. Today, it's the biggest event in the art world. It's like the Olympics of the art world, That's you know, right. yeah. every corner of the world show up. And if you want to know about art, you have to be in Venice because it kind of reveals what's going to happen the next two years, you know. But um, I got exposed there because I was constantly being sent to the Venice Biennale um, uh, to, to take care of some errands. And there were also, the Guggenheim here was closing down because of their renovation. Right. And so they had moved the operation to the Peggy Guggenheim. And then you would meet Tom Kranz and you would meet Madame Pompidou would come and I would, like all of us, all the we would have to guide them because when you land up in Venice, you can't find your way. Right. You have to know this, otherwise you'd be lost for hours. You're stuck in the canals, yes. <laughs> and you knew how to take a traghetto or a vaporato or which bridge. <laughs> and it was an incredible experience. And we were meeting all kinds of international uh, folks, um, both adults and young students like us, you know. And through that, because of that, my, my entree into the Venetian sort of, you know, the, the inner life, I was able to mount an exhibition, live in Venice for a year um, in 2015, when yeah. I mounted Frontiers Reimagined, you know. Yeah, which is excellent. It's uh, I mean, 26 years later to, to come back and uh, curate that uh, was really exceptional. Uh, congratulations on that. Um, uh, going back a little bit, um, share with us about your time at Oxford. I know that um, you know, areas of study were very much uh, influenced by cross-cultural interests, um, thinking about Indian artists and their response to European modernism. Um, but even at that stage, the architecture theme was presenting. I, I know that you looked, were interested in Frank R Lloyd Wright and, and J Japanese themes, and, and of course Louis Kahn. Um, and your first trip that you talk about to to Dhaka was in 1985. Um, so, yeah, I had I had received a travel grant uh, mm -hmm. from the architecture school and. So that's how I landed up and I had to do physically, I had to go and, and, and do the research. So I landed up in, in Dhaka to see this building, incredible building actually um, called the Sheri Bangranagar or, or the parliamentary complex in Dhaka, which was built uh, single-handedly by, uh, by Louis Khan and, and his team. You know, Louis Khan was the principal, he was the architect and who kind of, uh, created this amazing complex. It was a kind of Pyrenean dream, actually. And you walk into the space and it's, I can't believe it. This is a, sort of Roman, but yet it's so contemporary and futuristic. It couldn't, you couldn't pinpoint, yeah. you know, and that I knew. And because I was carrying a small eight millimeter Sony camera with me at that point, it was given by a friend of mine from Taiwan and and uh, Ichin uh, Zen and she said you're going to Dhaka here you can use this camera you know <laughs> and so I I didn't know how to use a camera at that point so no. that I decided I was going to make a film wow, one day so it was 
aspiration. It was only a dream, you know. Right. It, it took a long time. So, it, so when I was in Oxford, I was studying, actually, um, I, st I was studying the, the two families, the Nehru family and the Tagore family, the, kind of the <laughs> family. But my, I think that's what my um, advisor had proposed, you know. But my heart was in the idea of, because I'm an art historian and I, I, I kind of, I was really interested in, so I went back and a year later after doing a research for a year, I, I changed it to uh, Indian modernism. Okay. Well, Indian modernism and, and the response to European modernism. Uh, and so what that meant was, if you look at a great tradition like India, who has 5,000 plus years of history from Indus Valley, Harappa, and the Mohenjo-daro civilization. Right. So if you look at yoga, you have the yogic figures sitting there and meditating from the seals of Indus Valley. You can find it, and yeah. it's a national museum. So some of the Indian modern artists were looking at those traditions, yet they had to forget all their tradition during the, during the colonial phase. Because what happened in the colonial phase is that um, we, they started studying um, in the manner of royal academies. Right. And, right. and so they needed to study the Renaissance classical figures, paint in a manner. But the modern Western artists like Picasso and Barack and Matisse, what they were trying to do, all of those ingredients, artistic ingredients already existed in Indian art. And this, the Indian artists found out, uh, really it was a revelation in many ways. There was slowly discovering and there were a lot of um, the, the British uh, sort of historian and art historian, archaeologist, they were through the cross-cultural conversation, they were made aware of, and they were Indologists in some sense, you know. Right. So what that they, the Indian artists discovered their own heritage via European modern art. And mm -hmm. got to understand that we can be modern without giving up our own artistic tradition. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's phenomenal. Um, was it at that time that uh, the, the artist the sub, who was a subject matter of your first documentary, The Poetics of Color? Uh, yeah, that was Poetics of Color came about um, a little bit later because, but um, before uh, we jump to that conversation, let me uh, give you a, a little introduction to Indian modernism. What Indian modernism from my perspective was, I say India, in the only, only in the artistic context, did not go through the modern phase. Right. This juncture, you know, uh, because modernism is essentially about rejection of tradition. Right. That's what the Western artists had to do. They rejected their own classical tradition. And in order to create their artistic vocabulary, their syntax or their language, they went and kind of looked at the world culture Mm -hmm. The Oceanic art, African art, they looked at Islamic art, they looked at Borobudur, they looked at Indian art, Rembrandt, even, even before that, they were looking and they were taking that kind of, for instance, if you look at, if you're talking about India or um, uh, Asian um, art, it, you have, say, Indian miniature paintings, they're hot, bright colors, neologistic, shocking, right? Hot, because you have this miniature painting, yellows and red, Flat, right. completely abstract zone. Within that, there'll be one or two figures. Figurative, 
but completely ab abstract zone. So Indian artists realized this is what Picasso and Matisse and they were doing. They were taking these kind of ideas. So it's a, if we take out the figures and just keep those abstract hot zones, then we are modern. So that's how they understood Indian. So Indian artists never really went through the kind of modern phase. They, it was an overarching development and they landed into a kind of postmodern space, both where figuration and tradition and modernity can coexist. Right, right. So, and so that's why um, they, they started creating the kind of work that they did. Do you think not going through that experience of rejecting uh, traditional form, um, did that, uh, has that altered their postmodern expression of art? Is yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What you're asking is very important because what happened is that they already knew that we cannot reject our 5,000 year old tradition, even if I want to be a modern, even like artists like Souza and Hussein and right. Ara, all these people says, okay, we are modern and modern men rejecting your tradition. So they rejected the social tradition. They wanted to be modern. And so, and so what happened, if you look at the Bombay Progressive Group, which I studied a lot, what happened? They left lock, stock, and barrel. They, the, the day India gets its independence, they all beeline for Europe. Right. They landed England and largely to Paris and then other parts. And in order to be, and Nehru was proposing, in order to be modern, you have to engage the best of the Western mind. That's how you got Le Corbusier to build the, the great capital of Chandigarh. Chandigarh, yeah. Right. Built by one individual. like. Mm -hmm. Chandigarh first, then Louis Kahn's Ahmedabad. And then Louis Kahn also asked to build uh, Islamabad. And mm -hmm. that fell through uh, because of the war. And then he got Doxiades and the Greek urban planner uh, who got a, a collective group of our architect, Geoponte, and a whole group of other architects to design that. Yeah, yeah. that was phenomenal. Uh, in uh, overarching history, you know. Yeah, and this is so great. Uh, it's a for you to guide us through that. Thank you um, um, uh, for it. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, um, your artistic craft is clearly filmmaking, uh, as it, that's your passion, but uh, your love of art history um, feels like that was the, the cr critical ingredient for the, the gallery that bears your name and is now a worldwide presence. Um, uh, that was really the, 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 the basis for starting that back in, in 2000. Right. Uh, tail end of 1999, 2000, I opened the gallery in Soho and I took over, um, I had, uh, I, yeah, I took over the space uh, that belonged to a drawing center originally. And then there was some other. And so it was a really beautiful, grand space. And there I had the space, but I had no artist. And then I had to go. So it was a, the wrong way. But you know, you learn sort of as you, um, because to become an entrepreneur yes. in that cultural space is very different from studying art or uh, being an artist. It was a completely different process. So I knew uh, Robert Rauschenberg quite well. We had worked together in a project at the United Nation for the 50th anniversary. So we went and asked him, will you um, show with me? And that's when I learned that you have, you know, all these major galleries already had these artists. So he introduced me to his wife, Susan Wilde, who's a remarkable artist. Oh, so I, I, in fact, I showed a lot of young, a lot of um, established uh, women artists from New York school in the beginning. 
the beginning phase of my gallery. Mm -hmm. So it was a truly a global platform uh, and uh, about cross-culture. And artists I was drawn to had, had that kind of cross-cultural background. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, you've represented so many amazing artists. Uh, I'm just curious, um, uh, which ones are you sort of most inspired by having represented uh, in that in maybe you know, they wouldn't have had a platform of expression had it not been for you? Um, I mean, you know, getting into a gallery is very much like getting into a movie for a young actor or actress, you know, or if you think about it, you know, how many millions of people want to get into that space, right? Right. But only few will be selected in the same way. Millions of artists are there. Only there we have 1,500 galleries in New York, you know, all together. Mm -hmm. So even if you show 20 artists per gallery, you can count the numbers. <laughs> so what that means is that, yeah, I was drawn to artists and um, artists who kind of, I, I knew from the beginning that I was going to focus on this idea of cross-cultural dialogue. And um, so people would ask me, what, what's your... What, what niche area of, niche area are you showing? And you know, in those days in galleries, they were showing Russian art, they were showing Chinese art, they were showing Indian art, African art, or Western art. Mm. But this kind of, I was having this conversation with my friends, so why aren't they showing, we live in a city like New York, or live in the, the US, which is all about melting pot. Right. Cross, New York City is an experiment in the kind of cross culture, right? Yes. The postmodern experiment in living, right? All people from every corner of the world, you end up eating a kind of, let's say, Korean barbecue, or uh, you end up uh, eating and uh, listening to some Western opera, and then you study some, uh, or you do yoga in the morning, and you're introduced to Indian uh, Vedantic chant. So this is a cross-cultural experiment in living, right? Absolutely. So they're focusing on that this kind of isolation does not make any sense to me you know and so that's so that's what i focus on i would explain to people yeah we show cross-cultural ideas global platform uh, world art world art what does it mean now you completely understand so when people ask me what kind of art do you show i say it's a, it's a global platform for good or for bad, what that means is that it captures the zeitgeist of this moment. This particular, it, it really captures the spirit. So when I'm selecting artists, I'm thinking of sort of through my mind's eye, I'm projecting 50 years from now, will this art be relevant? Right, perfect. Yeah. One more artist who are kind of washed out. And if I can reason through, explain, myself that yes, this artist would be relevant in that context, you know, yeah. then just showing their work. No, that's wonderful, exquisite. And it's been a uh, fantastically successful uh, gallery. You have multiple locations, two in New York and also globally, uh, one in Hong Kong and uh, what a, a location in Singapore. And uh, for me personally, the uh, you had a location in my home city here of Los Angeles in Beverly Hills for a few years, so. yeah had for nearly 10 years you yeah. know, and then to close it because of the recession and then uh, California had its own uh, problems you know um, during that period you know and I said it was very hard to manage for me and yeah. I wanted I don't like to open things although we have opened a space in London I am not able to oh, occupy yeah. Cromwell place Cromwell place yeah but um, 
so that's space is there for us waiting you know um, and so between Los Angeles and the, uh, the Singapore location, those are the ones I've uh, visited most frequently. When were you there? Oh, I, I, we go every summer. Uh, so most recently, um, I guess I was there in uh, the winter of, uh, yeah, just before uh, travel ceased. I was there in the early part of like January 2020. And so I always make my pilgrimage to uh, Gilman Barracks. And uh, um, uh, your gallery director there is actually named Melanie. I remember because she's based, she's from the U.S. Yeah, she is, yeah. <laughs> she's very much, I think, if I'm not wrong, um, she was originally born in probably Tennessee. And Tennessee, she that's right. Or something of that nature. Yes. She lived in many countries. Yeah, no, she's in the Middle East as well for some time. She lived in the Middle East and uh, in, in Venice and uh, in, Italy, in uh, London and Hong Kong, all over. Yeah, well, I, I, she does a great job every time I visit. <laughs> so it's always very welcoming in that way. Um, we shared, a, you shared about your uh, Venice Biennale experience. I just wanted to highlight that um, the, the scope of how well it did, it had 25,000 attendees. Um, and then very much, you know, your theme Frontiers Reimagined was continuing this discussion of cross-cultural uh, interaction. Um, love to now talk about um you know the documentary films that you've been passionate about um i i just touched on briefly the poetics of color but maybe you could share with us the inspiration behind doing that and uh just how that came to be so um you were talking about venice you know i did uh, part of the filming in venice for the poetics of color yes, and, yeah. and it was um shot around that time also um and that was there and we could do it you know but um uh, so the the frontiers reimagined uh, just just a quick uh backdrop yes, yes. Uh, what's what's really important and before i get into um the poetics of color um the frontiers uh, reimagined what happened is that um it's because i believe you know today the way we let's say the air we consume right inhale um, the water we drink um, the people people are flying they're using airplanes like buses you right. know right. and for instance our field the art world was a very much a localized business at one point the reason for front, frontiers reimagine is that um, it's we are sharing everything today and the art world was very localized and it became the most intensely globalized right. and everyone had to travel in order to meet with your clients and meet with the artists and the artists came from different parts of the world and then you not only had to have multiple galleries and then you were attending all these biennales and triennales and conferences and art fairs and per year you attended about eight to ten art fairs right. so we were on the road all the time and this pandemic is very interesting and we can talk about that later in the context of the art world what happened but um what happened? I felt because we're sharing everything. So it's not just about one country anymore. We've got to take care of this planet Earth. Yes. And so the frontiers reimagined dealt with those issues. So we were very, um, so the, the Venetian Ministry of Culture and the, the Italian Ministry of Culture, both ministry helped us mount this exhibition. And it took 75 artists from about 30 countries. And it was the most, enormous exhibition I've put together and having worked in 
I told you for the 50th anniversary in the UN and other big exhibition, it was truly uh, enormous, yeah. but it was also very satisfying. Um, because as you said, uh, we had about 25,000 or so uh, people who came saw that exhibition and they searched for it. They actually, yeah. it was not easy. It was one of the most beautiful palace. It was a Roman palace in Venice yeah. that we were, it belonged to one of the Roman families that the Pope had sent to Venice to have their influence in Venice. And Venice was one of the richest places in the world at that time. Oh, yes. So they needed that influence because Venice was taxing. All the trade of West would go through Venice and Venice would keep part of the tax. And so they were building these incredible buildings and initiating and uh, sort of initiating all these artistic sort of uh, murals and all kinds of grand palaces with paintings. And so, um, so we, when we mounted the show, there was a P Michelangelo, there was uh, Peter Bruegel, there was uh, Hieronymus Bosch in that, in that collection. Wow. So they had to move all of that for our exhibition. Yeah, no, it's extraordinary also when you think about the progression of history of, of art and how it, it, it is uh, consumed. I mean, at that time, you basically, you built a palazzo and you had somebody come and, and do your wall for you. Uh, the yep. conversion of that to putting something on canvas that was suddenly transportable uh, <laughs> was mind-blowing and gave, gave a whole new uh, um, uh, perspective to, uh, to art. We had, a, we had a sculpture, a very well-known um, artist, and when we were bringing in the sculpture, suddenly it got caught in high tide, aqua alta. Oh, wow. Morning, it came in and it got caught in the tide, so we had to wait all day and all these people were hanging around. So they, they had to literally build a crane there. And everything, as you know, has to be transported by a boat. Yes. It takes a long time. Yeah. Then they built a crane, then they move all these ancient windows. Yeah. And then that's how we brought in the, uh, the sculpture. And it was mind-boggling in complexity in terms of uh, how difficult it is. But the Venetians are, you know, they, Venice has the oldest biennales in the world. So every other biennale or even the film festival or a dance festival, they all originated in, in Venice. Yeah. And, uh, so they know how to, how to manage and take care of these things. And, yeah. and they're really very efficient at this. Yeah, yeah. Wow, what, a, what an so, experience. Yeah, you were asking about, I'm sorry, I digressed. And, oh, and no, no, wonderful, I love it. So the poetics of color came a little bit later. Yep. And the poetics of color, uh, there was an Indian artist living in uh, Soho. And it was one of the first occupants of Soho called Natwar Bhavsar. He's from Gujarat. He came from a small village in Gujarat and ends up, he went to University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I got his MFA from there, another connection. <laughs> so, and, and so he was living there and our gallery was next door to him. And so wow. because of that, and I was also, then I started representing him. But because of that, what happened is that I knew his space and I thought it would make a beautiful film. So it's called The Poetics of Color. Wow. And that's a film that I made. That's phenomenal. And, well, it, what I really enjoyed just thematically, the, this is a story of an Indian artist who came to the US and contributed significantly to abstract expressionism and the New York School and, and, and um, your second documentary is The Inverse. It's uh, a Western artist. Our architect impacting uh, presence in Asia. 
yeah, that's right. So he, he arrives in India and he goes to, he designed the Ahmedabad Institute of Management. Management right. Right? Krishna Doshi, as you know, Doshi just won the Pritzker Prize, right. the most important uh, architect, architectural prize. And so Doshi invited him and they became very close friends. And uh, Doshi was also spending a lot of time in uh, UPenn. And uh, so because of that connection, his introduction to South Asia took him. Then there was one of his students who was a Muzarul Islam, who was a really remarkable architect and had also been to, he was uh, at University of Oregon, Eugene, and then he went to London and then he was his student at Yale. Wow, okay. And because of his student, being his student at Yale, he, when the Pakistan, those days it was East Pakistan, West Pakistan, the Pakistani government wanted to build two capital. One was a capital city in Islamabad and the capital complex in Dhaka. And so Muzarul Islam, if I'm not wrong, was the only trained architect at that point. Uh, uh, so he was given that job to select the architect. Okay. And he had invited La Corbusier. Yes. Corbusier was too busy, he said, I'm designing Punjab, the capital of Punjab. Right. And uh, he went to Alvar Alto. And Alto, the, the, the story is, I, don't, I went to Helsinki and I did my research. But the circulating story is that he got drunk the night before and he missed, missed his flight. <laughs> that was written in books, you know, but actually I found out he was sick. Okay. Right. He got, and then uh, that's how he missed his flight. And, and then they came to Louis Kahn and they called up Louis Kahn and they said, we have this plan, would you like to design it? He, Louis Kahn, char characteristically Louis Kahnian, and he said, when can we start? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and for me, I just, I'm mesmerized with how uh, that building has just captured your imagination, your inspiration. Um, your dear friend, Deborah Winger calls it your church. Yeah. So Deborah was very kind. I had met Deborah during, when I was in Oxford at the Modeling College and they were um, uh, making a film called Shadowland based on C.S. Lewis's life. Right. There. So it was uh, so I, I was skipping my class and I was watching them make this film and they included everyone just about, it was a historical part, partially based on his life. So, and they had quite a few of my classmates who are in the film as an extra, you know? Wow. Okay. And so I was watching them and then that's how I encountered her. And then through another friend of mine from, uh, from England who, we did a joint uh, a charity and she did a charity work on uh, called Sightsaver. And she had built a, gone to Sundarbans and built a hospital in Bengal. And so she had an already existing connection uh, to that place, Amazing. Uh, charity work, you know. And so we had become friends and we were always having this conversation. would love to make a film and would you, would you join me? And so that's how I was able to take her there. And so the Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina and her son, Sajib Wazir, you know, you can't make it, you can't just take cameras and people in <laughs> sort of guards there with guns. That's right. Yeah. So they gave us a carte blanche. That's great. To use that place. And that's wow. how we that film. No, so really grateful to them for... Yeah. Um, me to do this yeah, yeah. i was just going to comment on the building itself i think one of the most moving parts of it are the the dramatic carve outs these 
not only circles but triangles and of course Louis Kahn's context of how buildings had to have this weight and this gravitas to them um, but then also just the interior and how he did those interior carve outs to bring the exterior light in and sort of um, and you captured it so brilliantly in your film just the, the flooding of light that comes in but also the internal visibility that it gives so you don't feel like you're isolated uh, because you're in one hallway uh, because you yeah, have a view that's right so it's it's a very uh complex building you know and um and one of the sort of uh, the project manager um was explaining to me and that was purely for security reason once you come into the building you don't know how to get out <laughs> you, you, you actually don't know you wouldn't know yeah. it's like being in uh, getting caught in venetian kind of the labyrinth <laughs> so the entrance could be you'd be entering the the kind of the South Plaza, once you enter in, mm -hmm. and then there are many exits, but how to get out, you have to know the building really well. Yes. And the only people who know the building are people who are using it, right. the folks the, in the parliament, or people who are working there. There are thousands of people working there and maintaining the property and uh, all security and uh, all kinds of other uh, folks. So what happened is that I went there in order to do my research, went back to Dhaka again in uh, 2011, uh, 10, 11, before filming in 2012. That's when I began. So when I, I thought I would need to have some kind of crane, enormous cranes, mm -hmm. to sort of shoot from high above and make mm -hmm. the camera move up. I said, how do I get that? And do I have, it's enormously expensive to bring all these cranes from abroad. Mm -hmm. And so, Somewhere along the line, around 2011, this idea of drone came up. Drones, yeah. <laughs> but they didn't have any drones in, in, they didn't have it in Bombay. So I knew they wouldn't have it anywhere else. Yeah. Because Bombay has a big industry, um, yeah. as you know. Yes. Uh, so, so I in, imported these two guys from Germany to fly in and bring their drone. Nice. And that were able to film that, you know. Yeah. So, and as you said, you know, because what Louis Kahn was after, it was after the idea of silence and light yeah. and presence of architecture. When you walk into certain places, like when you walk into a cathedral, it's, it makes you feel special, yeah. a kind of revered space, right? And that's the kind of space he wanted to create because he was turned off by the kind of corporate architecture that was crea being created in America. Yeah. And what that what I mean by that it was called a square footage architecture. They were always interested in what the cost of square footage, right. you know, and glass and steel, but not the great glass and steel of Mies van der Hoe and the kind of great internet Bauhaus style. It just devolved into kind of very corporate architecture. Mm. And he wanted to create architecture of great weight and mass and silence and light. And so when you walk into that space, it's like walking into St. Peter's. Yes, amazing. Something akin to that. And that's the kind of, he wanted you to feel more, better than who you are. Yeah. And that's the space he ended up creating. And he died for that. Yes, and, yeah, at the end he did. Uh, well, and I love how your film highlights the rivalry, uh, but also deep mutual respect that existed between him and Le Corbusier. 
um, which also you know reminded me of the interaction between Picasso and Matisse. That's right. Um, he deeply admired, he really deeply admired Corbusier, you know, but at the, yet he knew he needed to create something that was distinctly different. If you look at <coughs> Corbusier's interest in using for a concrete, concrete and brutalist uh, uh, sort of architecture, right? There was an element of that, that was a modern. And I think uh, Louis Kahn was a, essentially introducing postmodern ideas because he was bringing in, if you see, in this gray sort of um, monolithic form that he creates at the parliamentary complex, the main, the central form. And if you get a chance to look at the film, you see it. Then there are bands of white marble that's taken from Mughal architecture. Right. Yep. And because it's creating in, in South Asia, that's it's right. a great heritage. So he's creating that. And then the brick architecture was both Roman and the red idea, red stone of Mughal right. reference to that. So he's bringing in all these references, you know, then what he's doing is creating the 50 different kind of cutouts, triangles, circles, all kinds of essentially bringing in light. Yes. But that was diffused light because once you, what, you, what he called ruins, he, was, he expressed himself in a, in a very poetic manner, right. but he called it ruins, you know. But what it meant was another shell before the actual building, so that when uh, in a South Asian heat, right. that strong sun that, that you have, when it hits that wall, the deflected light comes in. Yeah. Yeah. So that deflected light is pouring into the space where people are occupied. Yeah. And for that, it's a beautiful space. You float through that space. Yeah. Like in the Table Art Museum, or even in California. Right, uh, the Institute. It's one of the most truly spiritual space that he created. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, um, uh, your film does such an exquisite job of celebrating um, his significant contribution to, to architecture. Uh, I'm tempted to ask, what's next for uh, STG Productions? I'm, I'm working on a script, and it's about a, a Jewish family from India. They're originally, the orig origins are from Vienna. They come to Bombay. Nice, okay. And Partly based on facts, there were people like that coming into India during World War II. And they lived in India and they are the ones who actually kind of taught these young Bombay progressive group of artists like Hussein's, uh, Ara, Souza, all how to paint in a modernist manner. Because they were collectors of Oscar Kokoschka and Egon Schiele and all these sort of European modernists. And they had some of these artworks. They brought in some they sold in, in London and in order to uh, create the voyage to India. And when they came in, they settled down. And they were, when they settled down, they were part of the Viennese, the cafe culture, the artistic milieu. Right. And that kind of literati world they were from. And they recreated that in Bombay. And Bombay was a great place, absolutely incredible in those days. And there was a large uh, population of Jewish people there. Yeah. And so the story is they, they come back in the late 70s. They come back because of the communist uprising. Then he had this individual also was living in Calcutta. And he leaves and they know they have to create a new life in America. They care and they create a gallery. And what happens? So it's a world of a gallery. Nice. Gallery. But what 
happens is that you have to some um, writing the story actually. That's phenomenal, brilliant story. And uh, I've known about the Jewish communities in uh, in uh, uh, Bombay, uh, which surprised me initially, but uh, it was great to see. <laughs> it's just such a melting pot. Uh, a conglomeration of so many different uh, faiths and cultures in Bombay. It's such a thriving, wonderful city. You started a foundation in 2006 that has been devoted to um, uh, helping um, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, impoverished uh, people or, or with an artistic uh, theme. Um, and I know that uh, there's a strong desire to do a school in the, in the Himalayas. Um, how is that uh, progressing? Um, I, I had... I'd done a lot of work in that, you know, and really I was interested in uh, girls, young girls who are on the, uh, living in the streets and mm. I wanted to help them. And so initially before that, I was giving out this scholarship. I had given this uh, student a scholarship from Mozambique to come and study in the States. I'd given a student from Nepal to go and study in France. And I thought they were, they took away a lot of resources and I could help a large number of people with that kind of resource, right? So I said, these, uh, when I was in Calcutta, as you know, it's, it's, there were so many poor people living on the streets, you know, now, so, and I, I was noticing, so through that process, I was helping out. Now I want to, I want to take a, a big chunk of my time and, and devote in this space. And I started um, looking at organization I could help. And right when that happened, the, the recession took place, so I had to shelve everything. Sure. And then I picked, up, I picked it up. And then right before uh, the pandemic, I was going back to, to, to be really spending time there and, and working on it. So after this is kind of resolved, the issue of vaccine and all of that, I'll be spend, spending a significant amount of time actually going there and working and helping these people out. Wow, amazing. And, Young, uh, young girls, you know, because I feel if you take care of girls, then the family is taken care of. Oh, 100%. There are so many uh, um, important themes about investing in, in girls. Um, I mean, we saw this at the micro lending that um, Grameen Bank did uh, in Bangladesh. Um, they funded women uh, because they contributed to households. And when that happened, when they became economic agents, then their children um, became uh, the daughters became educated, and so uh, there was great social progression in that way. They were no longer child brides, or in the worst, they were no longer sold into prostitution. Um, so I completely agree with you, and uh, this would be a, a point I'd like to actually c continue to chat with you about uh, going forward because it's uh, an area that's very close to my heart. So uh, we'll definitely stay in touch on this. Um, Sundaramji, this has been such an amazing conversation. Uh, you've been yeah. so generous with your time and your stories. Uh, I really do appreciate um, your, your thoughtfulness. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure uh, speaking with you.